Last week we spoke about the importance of making disciples individually and corporately. We encouraged each of you as individuals to be investing and making a disciple of at least one other person. And as we talked about it corporately, we saw that the way that we accomplish making disciples corporately is through church planning. By God's grace, we planted a church in 2010 in St. Paul, Minnesota called Trinity City Church. Then about two months ago, we launched another church plant in Rogers Park called Agape Chicago. And I told you last week that I wanted to introduce you this week to our new church planner and location. And and we want to introduce you to who we hope and believe to be our next planter. And the location we'll tell you about in a second. So for starters, I would like to introduce you to Chipper and Kristen Flanagan. You guys come on up here. Many of you have known Chipper and Kristen over the time. They have been with us and have been encouraged by their lives and their heart for the Lord and their heart for the church. And you have seen their passion for those who do not know Jesus. There's passion to see people become committed followers of Jesus. And and the place that they feel called, a strong calling, we've been working on it for a while and praying through it uh, this past spring, is that they believe that God is calling them to plant a church in Gainesville, Florida, near the University of Florida. And what we're going to end up doing is, is challenging some of you to consider going with them as well. Throughout the process, we've been working with Chipper and assessing his gifting and praying about the location. And we're now at the tail end of the process and hope to send out a team this August for a launch date of the fall of 2013 or early 2014. And when we planted the church in St. Paul, people actually went with our planter. And when we, obviously when we planted the church in Rogers Park, several went as well. And so we believe that there are people in here that, that God will raise up to go with this team to Florida. In fact, there are already people who are praying and seeking and believe that God is leading them to move down to Florida and be part of this church plant. But there's always room for more. So this morning, we want to encourage you through the preaching of the word, and I'm, uh, and Chipper's going to bring the word this morning. Well, good morning. Um, like Jason said, my name is Chipper, and I'm one of the pastoral interns here at Evanston Bible Fellowship. And this past week, I was actually in Orlando, Florida, at a church planning conference. And I was there with a couple of people uh, that you may be familiar with. I was there with Ryan Harding, who is another uh, pastoral intern at EBF, and also with Jeremiah Vaught, who is the church planner of Agape Chicago that Jason just mentioned. So we had a wonderful time together. Um, I have to tell you, we showed up to the conference. I didn't know this in advance. Um, the theme of the conference this year was sifted, uh, and that comes out of Luke 22, where uh, Jesus says to Simon, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Um, and basically that what, the, what the conference was about was all the challenges of church planning. So it was just story after story of like, yeah, church planning, it really messed with my marriage. Church planning, it, uh, I mean, I turned into this raging workaholic. Church planning, uh, great. So, so we felt um, super encouraged by some of that. Maybe not, maybe not as much, but honestly, I think it was a really good thing. Uh, for those of us there to hear. 
um, even though it's hard to hear that church planting is difficult. I think um, the church the church plant will be better for it. Um, in the first session of this conference, this 29-year-old church planter walked up to the main stage with his wife. And uh, he has two kids, by the way, but they weren't there. Um, but this, this 29-year-old guy says, just started talking about his ministry in Vancouver, Washington. He talked about his life as a church planner, how he had just started, and kind of why they felt called to Vancouver and what, what the church planning ministry there was going to look like. Um, and then he dropped this on us. He said, about a year ago, I started getting this really odd limp in my right leg and went to some doctors. They couldn't figure out what it was. And eventually they found out that there is a tumor in my spinal cord that was gradually separating my spinal cord into two. And they did surgery on it. They, they didn't think it was malignant, but they eventually found out that it was, is cancerous. And as of the time of this conference, the doctors are telling him that he has three to six months to live. Seeing a 29-year-old church planner with his wife up there saying, I think I have six months to live, it breaks your heart into a thousand pieces, let me tell you. But honestly, what he said after that might have caught me even more off guard. I was expecting him, after he made this announcement about his cancer, to say, you know, I got six months to live. I'm going to turn over the church plant to another guy. Um, I'm going to spend this, you know, six months that I have left maybe on vacation and no, too bad. He didn't say that at all. Instead, what he said was this. Cancer doesn't stop church planting. He said, but it does transform the way I go about planting a church, and it transforms the plants. So the question is, why is church planting so important that a 29-year-old guy with a wife and two kids who has six months to live, says cancer doesn't stop the plant. It transforms the plant. Why does this guy keep going? Why doesn't he just kind of, you know, fold it in? I think people would understand that if he did that. So when we hear stories like this, I think we have to go to the Word and discover for ourselves, why? Why, why plant? Why does this guy want to do this? Why is he about this? And that's the question we're going to consider this morning. Why plant a church? Why plant a church? If you're sitting here and you're wondering, why does church planting matter to me? I don't care about church planting. You know, never even thought about it before. I'm glad people do it, but I don't really care. Consider this. 4,000 churches were planted in 2010 alone. 4,000 churches were planted in the U.S. in 2010 Consider also that Evanston Bible Fellowship was a church plant in the 1980s. So without church planting, we might not even be here right now. Consider that EBF has already planted two churches and is pursuing a third. And also, if you call EBF your home and you've given financially to EBF, then guess what? You've indirectly given financially to a church plant because EBF financially supports church planting. I also want to say, if you're sitting here this morning and you're investigating Jesus, you're not sure what you think of him, or maybe someone just kind of dragged you here this morning, you know, you might think of this message as, okay, now this really doesn't apply to me. But I would challenge you to think of this message as an opportunity for you to get an up-close look at why churches like EBF exist and why our love for Jesus compels us to plant more of them. So I think... 
I think the word has something to say for all of us this morning. So there's going to be two parts to my message. The first part deals with the definition of the church and whether or not churches like EBF are even biblical to begin with. Should we even have churches? And then the second part deals with the question I just raised, why plant a church? By the way, when I say plant, I essentially mean establish or, or start a church. I said to someone a couple of weeks ago, yeah, I'm going to be a part of a church plant. They just kind of looked at me like, what is a church plant? You know, you plant plants, you plant trees, never heard of a church plant. Church planting is essentially Christian lingo, I will admit that. There's a reason we say plant and not just start, but when I say church plant, think about we're establishing churches, we're starting churches. This is what we're talking about here. So let's, let's try to make some sense of the church. Let's talk about what a church is and try to define church. This is a really important question to ask. How, what is the definition of a church? Because there's actually a lot of ambiguity about what church is, especially in contemporary society. You probably hear references to churches in the media. You might hear it in, in political statements. Some people talk about, you know, the separation between church and state. Or you might see a media headline and it says, you know, the church did so-and-so today. But people rarely define what they mean by church. And actually, a lot of times, people mean very different things when they talk about churches. So it's an important question to address. And actually, if you ask a lot of Christians, what is a church, they might give you a lot of different answers. So it's important, again, to, to say, okay, what does the Bible have to say? The thing is, if we were really going to do our homework and answer this question most comprehensively, what is a church, we'd honestly have to start at the beginning of the Old Testament and trace the theme of the church all the way to the end of the New Testament. So who wants to do that this morning? It would take a really long time to do that. So I'm going to cheat a little bit. You're going to have to work with me for a time and um, sort of trust me here. I'm going to cheat a little bit as far as defining uh, what a church is. And I'm going to go ahead and say that when we talk about church today, and when I'm talking about church and churches this morning, what I'm talking about is church as it is spoken of in the New Testament by Jesus and the Gospels and the Apostle Paul in his letters. And we're going to look at what that means in a minute. But I'm talking about church and churches um, regarding how Jesus talks about church in the Gospels and how the Apostle Paul talks about church in his letters. So how does... How do Jesus and Paul speak of the church? Well, Jesus and Paul speak of the church in at least two, well, really two broad categories. On one hand, the term church, as used in the New Testament by Jesus and Paul, refers to the broader church, or what some people might call the true church, which Jesus and Paul understand to mean the community of every redeemed person, namely those who have been saved by God's grace, through their faith in Jesus Christ. So when Jesus and Paul speak of church, on some occasions in the New Testament, it's basically talking about all the Christians. That's what church means. And this is what Jesus means, for example, in Matthew 16, 18, when he says to Peter, on this rock I will build my church. It's a reference to the broader church, meaning the community of Christians, all Christians. And this is what Paul means, essentially, in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, when Paul talks about Christ being the head over the church. Again, he's speaking there of the broader church, all Christians. On the other hand, the term church 
especially when the term appears as the plural term churches in the New Testament can also refer to individual congregations. And these individual congregations are understood by New Testament writers, such as Paul, as referring to local worshiping communities that are manifestations of the broader church. Local worshiping communities that are manifestations of the broader church. So local churches are not just parts of the broader church. They are actually legitimate representations of the whole. And so local churches are, are in a sense, many churches. Examples of, of Paul speaking of church in this local sense would include, for example, his introduction to his, uh, the letter to the church in Galatia. For example, when he says in Galatians 1-2, to the churches of Galatia. That's talking about local congregations of um, in worshiping community right there. That is a manifestation of the broader church. And we know that Paul took local churches really, really seriously. In fact, one of the purposes of Paul's missionary journeys in Acts was to plant churches. Was to plant churches. And in fact, we see in Acts 16.5 that as Paul traveled and the disciples traveled and established new communities of believers, we read in Acts 16.5 that the churches were being strengthened in the faith and increasing in numbers daily. So Paul clearly cared very much about local churches and was establishing them as a church planter. Now I make this distinction between the church in a broader sense and the church in a local sense uh, because when we deal with the question later on, why plant a church, we're primarily talking about these local congregations that we just talked about, the local worshiping communities that are manifestations of the broader church. In other words, when I say, why plant a church, I'm not saying, why plant a new Christendom or a new Christianity or anything. We're talking about local congregations. Another question we have to address is, okay, are churches biblical? Are they biblical at all? You know, from the discussion we just had, you can see that the answer it's clearly going to be yes, okay? Churches are biblical, they're, they're referenced in the Bible. But a more robust discussion of this matter is necessary because, in part because of the onslaught of attacks against the church in contemporary society. We're familiar with these attacks. They, they come in a lot of varieties. I want to mention three of them. Churches are attacked as being hypocritical. You know, you churches in America, you say one thing and then you do another thing. Churches are attacked as being in bed with power. You know, you're just linked with the seat of power. You're, you're manipulating people and being manipulated. And people attack the church as being intolerant. Keep in mind that some of these attacks on the church can be really, really deceptive. Um, I don't know if you read Newsweek magazine, but if you've read Newsweek magazine for a, a long enough time, you might have noticed that around Easter time each year, Newsweek runs an article on Easter that is usually somewhat irritating to Christians um, because these articles often challenge um, the truth of the gospel and of the resurrection. And this year was really no exception. Um, In this past April's article, Andrew Sullivan argues that Christianity is in a crisis because Christianity is hypocritical, mm -hmm, obsessed with power, and in bed with politics. But he doesn't believe that the remedy to this is private Christianity. So I read that and I thought, oh, great. 
Here we go. Andrew Sullivan is going to give this wonderful exposition of why churches are valuable. He's not for private Christianity. Looks good. But then he says this. Instead of private Christianity, he argues that there are times when great injustices, slavery, imperialism, totalitarianism, segregation, require spiritual mobilization and public witness. So basically what he just said there was, you got injustices, that's when the church should rally. And honestly, that very statement questions whether or not we should be here right now. So it's so easy to just be reading along and, oh yeah, this is good stuff. He's talking about Christianity and right in the middle of the article he slips in a little, a little snap against the church. So we've got to answer questions like, is the church biblical before we can talk anymore about church planning? We've got to answer these questions. Do we really need churches? Or is it okay for, for Christians to kind of live in seclusion and not really associate with other believers. Do we, need, do we need EBFs? Do we need these at all? Are churches biblically legitimate? And it's important to answer this question before we advocate, of course, planting more of them. So the answer to this question, are churches biblically legitimate, is yes. And I want to make a couple of arguments for that. First of all, we see in Scripture that the broader church is certainly legitimate. Um, For example, we see in Matthew 16 that Jesus himself clearly ordained the church in a broad sense and made it clear that there would be appointed leaders with authority in this church. And if you would, go ahead and take a look at Matthew 16, verses 18 and 19. So you can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to go ahead and read these two verses. And keep in mind that this is Jesus talking here. He says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So we see that the divine establishment of the church is made really clear in this passage. The church is not, it is not, as some authors write, a sociological phenomenon. Christians didn't just kind of get together one day and feel like, you know what, we should really have churches. Churches were divinely established by Jesus himself. And we see that clearly in Matthew 16. And we also see in this passage that Jesus gives church leaders authority over God's people through the application of the word. In other words, the keys refer to the gospel. And then the binding and loosing refers to spiritual authority over the church. So we can see that he he ordains churches. And there's even some hints at what the purpose of the church will be. We can't go into that now. But take away from this that the churches are divinely ordained by God himself. Then we also see that churches are legitimate in a local sense as well. It's legitimate to have these local congregations. And if you would, turn to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And this is is the last flip of the morning. To Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And here we see that Jesus commissioned his church. So we saw in the past passage that Jesus ordained the church. And here we, we have Jesus commissioning the church. And let me read verses 18 through 20 in Matthew 28. 
And Jesus came and said to them, them being the disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So essentially, Jesus here commands his disciples to establish local congregations of believers. And you might be saying, how do we know that? that doesn't, it's not explicitly found in that passage. Now, I'd say, partly true, but check out the disciples and the apostles. How did the disciples and apostles go about fulfilling this commission in Matthew 28? By planting churches. And if you will check out the book of Acts, maybe if you have an afternoon, just sit down and read through the whole book you'll find that Acts is in part a church-planting book. We see that these disciples who have been commissioned by God for his work are going around planting churches. I also want to mention this, this quote from Tim Keller, Pastor Tim Keller, in a very helpful article he wrote called Why, Why Plant Churches, which, by the way, if you'd like that, I would love to give it to you, that article. But in that article, he says, he goes as far as saying, Jesus' essential call in the Great Commission was to plant churches, these local bodies. The Great Commission is not just a call to make disciples, but to baptize. In Acts and elsewhere, it is clear that baptism means incorporation into a worshiping community with accountability and boundaries. It is clear that baptism means incorporation into a worshiping community with accountability and boundaries. So really what Keller is saying, and I would agree with him, is if we're actually going to be a part of fulfilling this great commission in in Matthew 28, we've got to have churches. We've got to have churches, and so we have to plant churches. So we see that Jesus ordained the church in a broad sense, and and here we see in Matthew 28, Jesus is clearly saying, hey, you're going to need some local churches here. You're going to need some church plants. I've referenced these passages in Matthew because we've been studying this book for about a year and a half. Uh, But other passages in the New Testament establish, in part, the legitimacy of local churches. For example, if you take a look at Acts 2, you see a body of believers meeting together as a local worshiping congregation to study God's word, to pray, to eat together, and even to share their own possessions. And then the author of Hebrews gives us a warning in Hebrews 10.25 where he says, Don't stop meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. So clearly, the New Testament says churches are biblical, including local congregations such as EBF. And that is really good news. Otherwise, we'd all be wasting our time right now. And some of us would have been wasting our time for decades. So we find that the New Testament speaks very clear about the value and necessity of churches. Before I go on to part two and start talking about why planted church, I kind of I want to do an aside here. I want to talk about participation in local churches. We've seen that churches are biblical, but despite that, Christians often ask, you know, huh, do I really need to be involved in a local church? Do I need to do I need to participate? in a local church. And this question, unfortunately, is really common these days for younger people. Why be involved in a local church? I don't see the value. But I think the real question is, why would you not want to be involved in this kind of church community? 
that we see spelled out in the New Testament. It's a community ordained by Jesus Christ and characterized by sacrificial love for one another in the name of Christ. If Jesus ordained something, it's got to be pretty good. Our reaction as Christians should be, man, if Jesus said, do this, that's probably a good word. That's probably some wisdom right there. And also we see even in Acts that you know, the, the church is characterized by we're sharing things with one another, we're helping one another. Who wouldn't want to be a part of that? But you might respond, look, the church is flawed, first of all. You know, it's wounded so many people, it's disorganized. I mean, good grief, why would I want to be a part of something that has that many problems? Tragically, all of these statements are true to some extent. And these statements will be true to some extent until Christ returns. But despite its imperfections, Jesus Christ loves the church. Jesus Christ loves the church. We see this in Ephesians 5, 25. And you know what? He loves both the broader church and he loves local congregations. In fact, Jesus Christ loves the church so much that he died for it. That's how much Jesus loves the church, that he died for it and rose again so that those of us that are in churches and that our churches would have life. That's how much Jesus loves the church. So in light of this, Christians are called to love the church, the body of Christ, in spite of its imperfections. Remember that since Christ is ahead of the church, he's ahead of the church, all hope is never lost. It's never lost. Things in churches might seem terrible, but Jesus is the head, and because he is the head, all hope is never lost for churches. The reality is God graciously still chooses to commission the church for disciple-making despite its imperfections. And so if our perfect God still loves the church despite its flaws, I mean, how, how dare we, as his people, reject the church? Remember, too, that God intends for churches to be a source of spiritual, emotional, and even physical nourishment for Christians. Um, in Scripture, we see the church characterized by sharing of resources, the administration of baptism and communion, the preaching and teaching of God's word, caring for widows. It just doesn't make, your, it doesn't make sense to isolate yourself from this kind of nourishment. To use an analogy... Um, Say you're on like a, a desert island, you know, and you, you've got no food. Looks like all hope is lost for you. Then a helicopter, you know, kind of comes by and then from, you know, like a thousand feet drops this big bag of bananas onto the island, you know, right onto the island. And then you're looking at those bananas and you're thinking, oh man, I wish they had kind of like, you know, maybe sent them over on a boat because now they're all bruised and they're nasty and everything like that. So now you're looking at this bunch of bruised bananas. But if you're on a desert island... And you have no source of nourishment, and a bag of bruised bananas drops onto the island. You're going to eat the bruised bananas. You are. And similarly, with the church, in some ways, the, the, the church is like a bag of bruised bananas. You're a part of it. It nourishes you, but there's still some yuckiness at times. There is, and that's the reality of the church. The church is vital. It's irreplaceable and mandatory for believers. I want to close this section about the importance of being a part of a church by 
by quoting John Stott. And John Stott is a, is a pastor from the UK that sadly passed away recently. Um, and he has some words to say about the importance of the local church. And keep in mind that John Stott, he shoots pretty straight. He doesn't mince words. So take this with a grain of salt. But let's have, let him have the last word on this. John Stott says, <clears throat> and this is in, in a recent book that he wrote, I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person, for the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It's pretty strong. So don't be a grotesque anomaly. So we've seen the importance of the church. We've defined it. We've We've defended it biblically. Now we're going to turn to some reasons for planting a church. Why plant a church? Why even do this at all? You know, there's a lot of churches that exist already. I mean, it seems like maybe we have enough churches. Do we need any more churches? Do we need to expand on the number of churches that we have? I'm going to give you six reasons to plant a church. But before I do, I want to return quickly to why you should care about church planting. We, We touched on this earlier at the beginning of this message, but I want to I mention some things again. First of all, you should care about church planning because as we talked about, if you give financially to this church, you're giving money to church planning. You should care about church planning because church planning is happening all over the world. According to research from Ed Stetzer, who is one of the foremost researchers of, of church planning, as we talked about in 2010, about 4,000 new churches were opened in the U.S. 4,000! If you get too excited, though, consider this news, that in 2010, about 3,500 churches closed their doors. So we need new churches even to make up for the churches that are, that are dying off. But this is something to get really excited about. According to Ed Stetzer, 2010 was the first year in decades that the number of churches planted was greater than the number of churches that closed their doors. So that's something to be really thankful for and to praise God for. You should care about church plants because church plants need people like you to be a part of core teams that go out and plant these churches. And core teams can be thought of as like groups of people that assemble and say, yeah, I'm on board, I want to be a part of this church plant. Church plants need people like you, like people sitting here this morning to be a part of the core team. So learning about church planning now will help you decide in the future whether or not you would be a part of something that is both super exciting and super challenging. And uh, you might have noticed earlier we, saw, we sang this song, Desert Song, and the reason we chose that this morning was in part to make the point that, look, in church planning, there's a lot of deserts. There really aren't. It's, it's, I think it's necessary to be honest about that now. But... It's richly rewarding, and God uses church plants to draw people closer to himself. And you should care about church planting because even if you're already giving financially to EBF, and maybe you're thinking, you know what, I would never in a million years want to be a part of a church plant. You can still give prayerfully and financially to church plants and individual church planters. And when I make that point, I get really excited, and I hope you remember that point because I'm coming around in the summer to ask some of you if you'd be involved in church planning this way. So keep that in mind. That's another really important way to be involved in church planning. So now, six reasons 
why you should plant a church. Six reasons why you should plant a church. And these are going to go fast here. And I also want to note that this is not an exhaustive list. There are more than six reasons to plant a church. But I'm going to give you six this morning. First reason to plant a church is to glorify God. It's to glorify God. We plant churches to glorify God and establish churches to glorify God. It's always about glorifying God. We do not plant churches to make the descending church famous or to make a church planner famous or to get tons and tons of people so we look really cool. Church planning, at the end of the day, is always about glorifying God. We see in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, that in everything you do, you need to do it to the glory of God. And church planning falls under that umbrella of everything, for sure. John Piper is famous for quoting that uh, missions exist because worship doesn't. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And church planning is certainly a part of missions. So we could say that church planning exists because worship doesn't. We plant churches so that people would come to know Jesus Christ and glorify God. Second reason we plant churches is to obey the Great Commission. We've already seen that Matthew twenty-eight nineteen is a command to multiply. It's not about maintaining the status quo. So planting churches is a means of reaching every tribe, every tongue, every nation. We plant churches so that people everywhere in the U.S. and around the world would have an opportunity to be a part of a healthy, thriving local church. And by the way, church planning is a wonderful way to to tell people about the gospel because when you plant a church, you don't just kind of throw them the gospel and then get out of town. When you're planting a church, you're preaching and you're staying. And you're moving into the community so that people that come to know Jesus Christ can then be a part of your community. And if you're curious about just how effective church planning is for making new disciples, consider this statistic. And this statistic, again, comes from uh, Tim Keller's article on why plant churches. Listen to this. Denominational studies have shown that most new churches get 60 to 80% of their new members from the ranks of people that are not already attending a church. 60 to 80% of people that become involved in a church plant tend to be unchurched. So if you want to reach out to people with the gospel and, and have people that weren't in churches be in churches, plant church. Statistics even back this up. And on the flip side, and by the way, this, remember these are statistics. These don't describe every church. But unfortunately, churches 10 to 15 years and older usually gain 80 to 90% of their new members from existing congregations, from transfer growth. So church plants tend to get the majority of their members from people that were not part of the church previously. And and sadly, existing churches generally tend to get growth from people that were already in other churches. So when I make disciples, obey the Great Commission, plant churches. Third reason to plant a church is to be personally transformed. To be personally transformed. Uh, I was meeting a few weeks ago with Mark Bergen. And Mark is a pastor of the Painted Door Church uh, in the Loop in Chicago. It's a church that's actually relatively close to Moody, for those of you that go there. Um, And Mark was telling me that 
people all the time say, Mark, I don't know about church planning because church planning is really risky. You know, it's so uncertain. I might, I might move to this place and then, you know, three years later the church goes belly up and then I'm stuck in this place and I don't know what to do. I, I don't know if I want to do that. <clears throat> but Mark said, look, church planning isn't really risky. He said, if God is calling you to be a part of a church plant, the reason he wants you to be involved with this plant because ultimately, he wants to transform you. He wants to bring you closer to himself. <clears throat> and Mark said, look, if you're part of a church planning core team, I can promise you, you'll be transformed. The church might go belly up in three years, but he said, you'll pray better. Let me tell you what, you'll pray better if you're a part of that kind of a church plant. So in a sense, then, church planning isn't risky because you're signing up to be transformed, and you will be transformed if you are part of something like a plant. The difficulty of church planting draws churches and it draws individuals closer to God. The fourth reason to plant a church is that churches that plant other churches are energized and guard themselves from being insular. God seems to look really favorably upon churches who give sacrificially to build the broader church who gives sacrificially to build the broader church. And this isn't like a health and wealth church planning theology. I'm not saying, you know, if you plant a church and you send 200 people, then God will bring you 500 more, you know, to your church. I'm not saying that. However, churches that plant other churches are doing something that God wants to see happen, so he gives them the resources they need to make it happen. Uh, I was reading a book by a church planner uh, who had recently spent some time, and I think it was Virginia, and he said, uh, he, was talking, he was at a church, and he was talking to a member of the church, and he just happened to ask this person, hey, tell me about the, uh, the attendance at your church. Tell me a little bit about the history of this uh, congregation. And the member of the church said, well, about four years ago, we had 400 people. And then about two years ago, we had 200 people. And then now we have 400 people again. And the church planner was like, hmm, that's interesting, four, two, four. It sounds kind of like a rocky road. I mean, you know. What was going on there? And then the, this member of the church said, well, two years ago we planted a church and we sent half of our congregation to go be a part of this church plant. And since those people left two years ago, we've actually added another 200 people to our own congregation. There's a biblical support for this too, I think, in, in Acts 13 for this kind of pattern of God looking uh, favorably on, upon churches that plant, we see, in fact, in Acts 13.3, that a very significant church planting movement happened there. And Ed Stetzer, again, we've talked about him before, in this book, <clears throat> Planting New Churches in a Postmodern Age, he says, the founding of the Antioch Church may be the most important moment in church planting history. And the reason that he says this is because the church in Antioch sent people, including important leaders of their church, very important leaders of their church, to go plant churches that reached the world. But at the same time, the church in Jerusalem began to be more inwardly focused and started to dissolve. Fifth reason to plant a church. Plant a church for the privilege and delight of being involved with God's mission. For the privilege and delight of being involved with God's mission. Let me read Matthew 28, 19 one more time. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, because God desperately needs your help, 
baptizing day in there, that's not what it says, does it? In fact, God does not need our help. We see this clearly in Acts 17, 25, where it says that God is not served by human hands as if he needed anything or if he needs anything. God involves imperfect people like us on mission to make disciples because this glorifies his name and graciously allows us to observe miracles along the way. The power of Christ is made perfect in our weakness, and we get to enjoy the ride. So being a part of God's mission, it's, just, it's not a burden. It's not this thing that we have to do because we're, we're obligated as believers. It's a delight. It doesn't mean it's not hard, but it's a privilege and a delight to walk alongside God as he calls people to himself. What a glorious privilege that that is. The sixth reason to plant a church. Plant a church so new churches can plant even more churches. Plant a church so that new churches can plant even more churches. We plant churches that plant churches. Church planting stops when Christ returns. So until further notice, we continue to plant churches. Recall last week when Jason said, every church plant a church. That was one of the the direct challenges that he left us with last week. Every church plant a church. And I'm going to go out on a limb here. I'm going to modify his statement, which is very dangerous. I'm probably going to hear about this later. But I'm going to say, plant churches that plant churches. Plant a church that plants a church. In fact, Kristen, my wife, and I are going to have this in mind when we go to Gainesville. We're not... Looking at Gainesville, the end game. You know, we plant a church in Gainesville, then we're done. Done with church planting, we're done, out of here. No, we're going to Gainesville to plant a church, but we're going to Gainesville to plant a church that will plant more churches. And the vision is to put aside resources from that plant as soon as possible so we can think about planting churches in other places. With this in mind, I'm going to close by asking you to pray about what your involvement in a church plant might look like. It could be going to be a part of a plant. It could be praying for a plant. It could be giving financially for a plant. But I also want to say, if you're, if you're here today, and you don't even consider yourself a Christian, like we said before, maybe you were just dragged in the door. Maybe you saw this sign and you said, what the, you know, what the heck, I'll just come in and see what these people have to say. I challenge you to consider afresh whether or not your ideas about the church actually line up with what the Bible has to say about the church. And keeping this in mind, this is so important. God loves you. God loves you. No matter who you are, or no matter what your background is, the doors of the church of Jesus Christ are wide open to all those, all those who would seek to follow Jesus Christ. If you want to know more about this, please talk to me after the service. Go to the welcome table and talk to people there. There's people that want to talk with you about the gospel. So let's continue to worship this morning by praying.